Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? Now, do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or Whatever Movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Today we are talking David Fincher's Netflix original film, Mank. 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 Just say it, Mank. Yeah, Mank. What's up, (laughs) Mank? So this is a new entry for Netflix and David Fincher movies. This is his longest span between movies. His last movie was Gone Girl like six years ago. So when a David Fincher movie shows up, you sit up and take notice. Gary Oldman, no slouch. I thought we should watch this one, right? Yeah. This is kind of our first award season entry. And as such, went into this movie knowing zero about it. Got Kelly on board. What's Mank about? That's an ambiguous title. I don't know. But we're about to find out. Nothing? Like not even a Citizen Kane reference? Nothing. So did you know anything about Mank going in? Because I didn't even read the blurb on Netflix. All I knew was something I had seen in a Deadline article where Gary Oldman talked about Mankiewicz accepting the Academy Award like in real life in Orson Welles' absence. Like I knew that there was some kind of credit scandal or something associated with Citizen Kane. Okay, I didn't even know that. So you can imagine how that went, given that no one said the words Citizen or Kane until the very end when Citizen Kane was awarded its Oscar for screenwriting. Is that true? Well, in the movie, nobody said either of those two words. They didn't even say the original title that I discovered was Mankiewicz's uh, screenplay title, which was The American, or which was American. Because I had the context, I didn't realize that they never said the title. And I find it kind of hard to believe in all of the creative discussions that he and Orson Welles had, or he and the producer um, Hausman had. But um, I guess that makes sense. I watched the first half of this movie twice. 
And the first time, I think I understood and retained almost nothing, like frustratingly so. Yeah, I estimated about a quarter. And then I watched it again, and this is definitely not a washer. This is a watcher (laughs) (laughs) to use your nomenclature. And I was like all attentive and like leaning forward and paying attention. And thankfully... I was able to kind of piece it together and I have some kind of weird satisfaction for having kind of understood this film. Not that I understand all the contexts, political, both studio and governmental, but I understood the structure of this film. And not to suggest that I didn't know anything about the content. We live in Southern California. We are producers and we know something about Hearst. We've seen Citizen Kane. We knew about yellow journalism and things. It's just I didn't know starting off who Mankiewicz was and that he was the screenwriter for Citizen Kane. So being that I have that context, I was able to grasp before they ever said the title of the movie, which one they were working on, especially when Hearst came up, who eventually they just lapsed into calling Willie. But I, I got to imagine with for someone without that context, this is a film made about filmmaking, about filmmakers. And if you are in any way on the outside, it's got to be a difficult breach, right? I'm sure for people who love that movie and have watched it a million times, there are lots of references like Mayer kind of shouting into the microphone during the political rally or the political uh, event where he was, they were counting down the votes. I'm sure that a lot of these scenes were meant to mirror and thus conceivably inspire some of the Citizen Kane work. Like he sees Mayer up there kind of raging on the microphone at the podium. And, oh, I can put that into the movie. In the same way that when Orson Welles has his rager at the end and starts throwing stuff, Manga's like, oh, that's good. We can use that physical acting out as a, you know, when so when she leaves Kane. Yeah, in the totally anticlimactic climax. And in the, the anticlimax. I guess the point being that if you know Citizen Kane backwards and forwards, there may be a whole lot in this movie where you're like, oh, see, that scene looks like Citizen Kane. It must have influenced it because that was part of Mank's life, thereby lending credibility to the idea that maybe he wrote this movie entirely in in Wells's absence. Yeah, I think this movie was, um, I hope I'm not overusing the term, recursive in its self-referentialness. Certainly technique-wise, like they were implementing all kinds of Citizen Kane-esque filmmaking techniques. Tell me about it. Like some of the kind of cutesy blocking where you hold a paper or map or something up and then you open up on a big wide and there's that and all the dips to black. In addition, we had lots of flares. This is probably the most since uh, J.J. Abrams movie from back in the day. We have the cigarette burns suggesting the changes of reels. That was cute. Uh, Fincher mentioned that before in Fight Club and stuff. My question is the acting and the blocking and the camera techniques. I get that it was meant to evoke films of that style, but also the sensibility of how films were to be made. Was the acting period as well? Was it intentionally sort of grand and and explosive, but otherwise maybe just a touch false to the ear? I think that the acting was pretty felt pretty contemporary. It didn't feel acty, stiff, or staged. Brian also mentioned that they used old-timey microphones. I, I guess I'm assuming the hardware. It wasn't quite the level of old-timey radio. Did Herman Mangowitz write for Citizen Kane all by his lonesome? Let's find out. But right. it, at the same yeah. time, there were so many things like that. They used 
I guess, were they like condenser microphones or were they compression microphones, something like that, because they definitely altered the audio. The audio was a big hang up in this production, but they shot this thing entirely on, on modern digital 8K red cameras in black and white. So no color cut of this film exists in any form. Uh, Fincher's insistence on doing it that way actually led to a lot of delays because this movie, written by his late father, back in like 2003, possibly before that, has been around for a long time. Nobody wanted to make it like Fincher wanted to make it. Netflix apparently is pretty good about this kind of stuff. So they're like, yeah, go do your your uh, Mankiewicz movie. I don't know if certain weird things that stood out to me, like all the weird lens flares, were intentional or if that was a byproduct of the processing of this digital footage or what. But even the fan in the background was noticeably strange. The fire behind Mank in Hearst's uh, when he was uh, drunkenly ranting over the dinner party was obviously fake. I don't know if it was a treatment of actual fire or if it was an effect, but everything looked dated to me. There was even this weird distortion, like a light distortion uh, around his pen when he was writing at one point. It felt like an old movie before restoration. And I wonder how much of that was intentional and how many great lengths they went to achieve that effect. I got the sense that a lot of those effects were employed to kind of project something about Mankiewicz's mindset. It seemed to me to be story motivated, like in particular, like when he wakes up at Marion Davies film shoot like it feels really blown out and overexposed and like you would feel if you had a hangover and you woke up in broad daylight or the scene where he's drunk and stumbling around and going into his whole like diatribe in front of Louis B. Mayer and W.R. and his whole carnival party circus <laughs> I don't whatever it was so, all that to say <laughs> that when he was when he was stumbling around and monologuing like it felt like kind of vignetted and and claustrophobic and it felt like a lot of those effects were employed to support the story to what level of effort they had to go to to employ them whether practically or or in post I don't know but it seemed like they were motivated and maybe the most obvious editorial choices were made in the election results the sort of surreal montage a close-up of headlines and and eyes in in uh, close-up and that kind of thing do you remember that oh yeah when he's at the at the party but also you know kind of story motivated as he's I'm presuming getting drunker and drunker. Sure. It just it just seemed to be the most obvious throwback to a style of filmmaking and editing that we would be familiar with from the period, from Hitchcock Definitely. and things like that. Um, so going back to the party, um, I was a little bit lost for a lot of this. We were so far removed from the politics of the time that even if we were able to keep up with the rapid fire banter and the quips, it still is a lot to ingest, right? Even if we weren't already removed by, what, 80 years? But pretty safe to say that Hearst and his parties were the epitome, the highest of high society, dressed up in costume. And it's funny to see Mank show up in his all disheveled in his suit, shouting with his cigar and his drink and stuff. And then people will get up like, I simply will not tolerate listening to this. And they will storm out of the dining room and put on like their safari hat on their way out the door. <laughs> but like, where are you going? Are you going to wander around some other dude's palatial estate on top of the yeah, hill? Yeah, they're like, going to... 
they're going to go st- into the topiary maze or, or you know, the great ballroom or something. You don't get up from someone else's dinner party if a guest crashes and starts talking crap. Well, I don't know. Hearst was awfully indulgent of Mank in that. I was like, how far is he going to let this go? Oh, he's going to go until everybody has been so offended that they're going to indignantly storm out of the dining room. Like, he let him go really far, probably too far far for a host like who has other guests to kind of consider right but i guess there was a point to it or just far enough to where he could clear out most of the room except for mayor and then you know take mank by the shoulder and then push him into the fire yeah i thought something much darker or menacing was going to happen instead he gives him this i mean and i was also looking into the um organ grinders monkey parable (laughs) thing for deeper meaning because i was like it's a little bit ominous sounding right Definitely. And I have a confession about that, which I'll tell you in just a minute. But I was one I was really trying to read into it. Like, is there some kind of veiled threat in there? Right. So I have so I have to say that um <laughs> I didn't think that the organ grinder monkey was a monkey <laughs> dialing a little organ. I thought that the monkey was a pet of the organ grinder butcher <laughs> who was like, I'll let you be my pet. Until I grind you up and I put you into or a hamburger. He, he's like he's like Sweeney Todd. He's back there turning the organ grinder and like grinding up the man's victims. Maybe because I was really looking for something so much darker and so much more ominous. I really thought that the parable was saying, like, be careful what you, you know, how you dance around out there, because one day you're going to get caught up in the organ grinder. Fincher is smart enough that he knows to trade on those things. He knows that it does sound ominous. And Hearst is meant to be an ominous figure, even if he's not going to do anything to Mank, especially considering that it was in flashback when all that happened, right? That's true. But we're also talking about Charles Dance here. He was Sardo Noomspa. Sardo Noomspa? Yeah, the golden dude. dude. You can't. My dear sweet brother Noomsi. Dude. <laughs> Mind blown. Are you telling me like 30 years have passed since Noomspa became Lannister? Uh, a long time. I mean, Golden Child was what, 88? 86? Wow. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> You know, it's funny because his performance is pretty much, uh, yeah. I mean, Charles Dance has had his thing dialed in back in the 80s. Yeah. And what else? And of course, he was in, he worked with Fincher before in Alien 3. But but what what's the other major role I'm thinking of? Not Game of Thrones, not Golden Child, but, uh, oh, uh, Last Action Hero. But anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know what major role or that anybody, <laughs> but the point is he plays a bad guy. And additionally, he plays a British bad guy because he's British and a lot of people in this movie were British, Gary Oldman among them, all of them affecting American accents, which was a little bit curious to me. Including Lily Collins, right? who I thought was his other typewriting assistant, Lily James, from The Darkest Hour. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember Lily James from Cinderella and uh, Baby Driver. Yeah, and exactly. Downton she Abbey, had a good year. Yeah, but you know who also had a good year is Lily Collins, who was surprisingly strong. I know Lily Collins from that stupid uh, Mirror, Mirror, Snow White movie because I worked on the show with two of the little people that were the dwarfs and they kept on talking about Mirror, Mirror being their big break into acting. And I was like, really, this one? The Julia Roberts movie? Right, exactly, that nobody saw. The point is, I was like, why is Lily Collins in this movie? And actually, she surprised me. She was a good... um, 
Britishy. Well, yeah, no, I thought that she was a good counterpart to Mank, and it was nice to see actors that I wouldn't ordinarily have thought could carry this kind of weight uh, do their thing. I thought the guy who played Orson Welles was eerily appropriate, and I don't know who that was, but it worked for me. And uh, Tom Burke. And Amanda Seyfried was good as uh, as the ingenue, I guess. Uh, she played a real person, maybe not quite portrayed accurately in the movie, but neither here nor there. It was nice to see people act convincingly because if nothing else, this movie was full of high caliber performances and high caliber filmmaking that might have been just a little bit unwieldy for Netflix and chill. <laughs> Yeah, it's not exactly a lean back kind of fun Friday night popcorn fair. All of the women, I thought, really well cast in that, yeah, they could go up against the formidable Gary Oldman, who is ironically kind of at its best when his characters are at their worst. And all of the women in his life are counterpoint to that, right? Because as airheady as Amanda Seyfried's Marion Davies might have been, she had uh, some real substance to her performance and... Lily Collins is basically everything that that Herman Mankiewicz is not and like pinnacle of health and loyalty and stuff even his wife poor Sarah don't call her I insist you not call her poor Sarah anymore (laughs) I think those were literally her last words (laughs) as she went to go and stare a horse in the face she hadn't been riding in years no she Uh, hadn't seen a horse's face in years it was always the horse's ass for her it's very quippy it's very yeah well the whole i mean the whole thing was written that way and it's like people you're like how witty can these people really be like Aaron sorkin level witty exactly like people don't really talk this way and it's kind of you kind of feel dumb (laughs) just trying to keep up with them but i mean i thought that these three women were all kind of different and distinct in their own way and and showed that, you know, as kind of unrepentant as the main character might have been, he at least had the good sense to keep some some good people around him. Right. And thankfully he did, because we needed those people. Hearst was kind of this untouchable king on the hill. Uh, Mayor was so far removed from normal people like he's just one of those studio men. And I don't understand why he dropped the handkerchief outside the car after the funeral. But even Mank was such an elevated character. It's like, how does one get close to this person in life? You would need someone as extreme as Orson Welles to have a Mank that you can utilize to the best of his abilities. Now, these ladies were loyal to him, and especially the lady whose entire village he helped out or he was benefactor to. That was all admirable. But these quote-unquote normal people were sort of our inroads to some of these characters. Uh, Marion in particular, I think we were meant to identify maybe with more as a contemporary sort of person and Mank being from a slightly different school and Hearst being from a different class. But Marion at one point says, to Mank, you know, I hate the shop talk. You never know. I never know what's going on. And I was like, you got that right, sister. Like we can bypass. <laughs> She's speaking for all of us. Right. We can bypass all of the political stuff and just kind of go outside and smoke a cigarette and sit on the bench and, and kind of figure out what we're really doing there. Because all that shop talk is artifice, right? It's posturing and it's trying to make sure that you're a contributing member of this high society socialite kind of vibe. It's not like she's some kind of misfit. She's, she certainly fits into this. And as W.R.'s girlfriend kind of 
maintains a certain kind of status. But she does kind of speak for all of us and him kind of educating her on the ways of the world was it was a nice it was touching and kind of a nice scene and he was kind of like fatherly toward her which made you feel better about their platonic affair so all of that was help in exposition to be able to kind of dumb it down for the masses i guess and i don't mind admitting that i was one of those dumb people who i told kelly afterwards i got maybe a quarter of the actual content of that movie And so you try to break it down from a filmmaking perspective, but at times inaccessible. And like I said, if you don't know even the story about Citizen Kane, if you're left to figure it out, you know, from a cold start, it's a long road to hoe. I mean, you got to be kind of fresh. Like you can't be falling asleep. You got to have the subtitles turned on. We did. And you got to pay attention. And if that weren't hard enough, did you find the time jumps, the endless time jumps confusing? No, I tracked it. I mean, the lower thirds helped. And what was weird to me was that all the political stuff was present day. And it gave the political B story like a ton more weight than I think was necessary. Like, did you feel like the whole Upton Sinclair political conspiracy and the and the propaganda films and all that stuff were really that important to the story? And that is what leads me to believe that if one were more entrenched in this world, if you had a much firmer grasp of not only Citizen Kane, but of the politics surrounding swirling around Citizen Kane and Hearst at the time, this movie would offer a treasure trove that we simply didn't tap into, that we may, never made use of. But also, was the political stuff contemporary because everything that happened with Hearst was fodder for his ultimate crafting of the Kane character in Citizen Kane because the modern stuff all took place after the depression after the studio stuff and while he was convalescing from his car accident yeah that's fair and so even the diatribe or the monologuing at the Hearst Castle, we knew he wasn't going to be barbecued and then made into and then thrown to the organ grinder monkey to be made into pies because he was going to survive to the present and actually write Citizen Kane, probably taking some perspective from that experience at Hearst Castle. Just to be clear, the organ grinder's monkey is a monkey that plays the organ. I think the and dude... that is uh, intended to be like a puppet for powerful men or at least beings more powerful than himself maybe but i think what happens is a a person grinds the organ like the little hurdy-gurdy and the monkey on a leash dashes about and collects coins from the audience in his little vest and fez hat <laughs> okay now that we've cleared that up <laughs> and and mank was the organ grinder monkey I guess so. Although Mank maybe came into his own and it was meant to suggest that Wells couldn't have done without him, that Hearst maybe did deserve the dressing down that he received. Maybe Wells was actually the monkey. Maybe. Or one of many monkeys. Because for as well regarded as Orson Wells is, uh, he certainly didn't come off as being the good guy. No, but he's not necessarily the bad guy. He's just kind of a single-minded, self-consumed artist type. And you know, he does set the story in motion, right? So Mank gets into the car accident and shortly thereafter when he is in traction or some kind of, you know, terrible looking recovery position, <laughs> Orson Welles approaches him and he was like, I know you're all busted up, but can you write a screenplay for me? And so then they go and he starts on the screenplay where Houseman sets him up in, um, in um, where did grandma live? Oh, in Victorville? Yeah, yeah. I felt like it was the low position. It was He was the organ grinder monkey in the lowest of society, convalescing out in the desert, out in the middle of nowhere, all busted up. But he used his mind to write Citizen Kane. And I think I would get a lot more stuff done if I had someone to take dictation and to write everything down that I said. 
way more stuff. But it was a stark contrast, and it really helped me with the uh, chronology jumps to be able to distinguish him convalescing out in the out in the sticks with Hurst up on his hill in the castle surrounded by marble. Like, it wasn't like, hey, let's put Mank in his place. I think that the intention was to separate him from his vices, right? Like, literally dry him up out in the desert and give him no access to, like, to drink, to drugs. And and it, w- it wasn't like to ostracize him, but it was to kind of give him the best possible opportunity to actually be creative free from vices yeah but the visual wasn't lost on me and apparently writers have their vices man you're not going to get the writing out of him if he doesn't get his booze before bed and what was the deal with the mickey like orson Welles slipped a mickey in one or all of those drinks inside of the toolbox i don't know well i mean they were second all I just feel like there's nothing like everything that's like drug related back in the day, like old timey days were called Mickey's. Like what exactly is a Mickey? I don't know because I don't do drugs and I've never tried to slip drugs to other people. But you know about them. Well, I get that. I think Mickey's Mickey's are sedatives, which the second all is. They weren't Mickey's. They were sickies. Seckies. Well, apparently they did him in. He did the one and then he like almost died. And then he did two and he was like fine and riding away. I guess. I'm just saying I'm not I wasn't tracking the whole drug thing. I didn't track it either because I kind of didn't care. Like he was going to get his fix one way or another, whether it be the drugs, which I don't know that the effect would have been all that different. It might have been. I mean, how do you dry someone out from their downer addiction and then provide them with a whole suitcase full of prescription strength downers? Yeah, I, I, I don't know get how that. it works. How did the. How are those downers okay, but the alcohol that he had delivered in the crate was, like, so offensive to, to Rita? I don't know, to man. Mrs. A. But she got behind it anyway because all you got to do is tell a story. He probably had that story all manufactured. Be like, if anyone asks you what your loyalty is to me, I saved your entire village. Got it? Now here's some money. Well, it justified uh, Fraulein Frieda's presence. Like, you're like, I'm not sure why there's a enabler? German housemaid enabler there but as soon as they talked about mankville or mank town or whatever they're <laughs> gonna call it like then i was like oh okay well i guess okay so let us get to the part that was most unsettling about mank for me clearly established <sighs> that when he died of alcohol related health issues 11 years later he was how old like 50 something 55 which made him in this movie gary oldman hollow-eyed jowly old ass gary oldman was supposed to be my age in this movie and even kelly was like no one thinks that that dude is 44 in this movie right i mean mank must have been on it because that alcohol must have taken a toll because gary oldman's like 60 right he's yeah he's 62 and uh, yeah i mean i guess according to the math he's playing a 44 45 year old Oh man that's depressing but that's what drug and drink will do to you. And Marion was by far the youngest major player, I guess. And she was almost in a way like a plaything of these rich and powerful elite. Whereas arguably Mank was of I what I consider to be of the same age, roughly the same age as Mayor. They're in the same circles, but their orbit is different. Because I was thinking the whole time, you have to be an an older, established gentleman to be able to write something as heady and as encompassing as Citizen Kane. Well, I guess in writer years, you know, he was probably pretty old. I guess so. But those writer years showed up on his face because Gary Oldman, not a young (laughs) dude. And I think he was, apparently he looks nothing like Mank. And uh, he was in favor of a Hannibal level 
layers of makeup. And David Fincher was like, no, I just want a minimalist look. I really want to get the feel and essence of a person. And I don't need you to look like Mankiewicz, who nobody knows what he looks like. I've seen the movie. I still don't know what Mankiewicz looks like. I don't matter. think it's important. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that means that he didn't have a tremendous amount of aging makeup. I know that he had dark circles under his I hope he had dark circles under his eyes. Uh, Gary Oldman has his own demons, but man, he wasn't looking no 44 to me. <laughs> The thing that aged him, I mean, yeah, he was looking pretty tore up, but he was looking kind of paunchy and swollen. And what do we remember how Ben Affleck looked in uh, The Way Back? Like yep. kind of puffy? Yeah, puffy. He looked kind of puffy. <laughs> Honestly, I think, though, because I recall Gary Oldman being bearded in recent years. And I got to say that for me, a lot of it was the was the neck, was a little bit of a waddle neck. He's got some yeah. puffy neck happening, which definitely ages a person and which terrifies me to my very core. I think that if I were going to have plastic surgery, it would be on the neck. <laughs> We'll start saving now because that ain't cheap. But everyone was older, younger back then. Like peop like men had like jobs and homes and kids at like twenty five. Yep. And you see Orson Welles, who's a major player, and you're like, that dude's twenty six. Do you know what I was doing when I was twenty six? <laughs> Nothing. Playing video games I, in mom's. I, I think uh, I was working bedroom? no, I was working at the Cheesecake Factory. You ever swipe a cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory? Uh not swipe, but I got a twenty five percent discount. But uh, overall feel of Mank, I think, was one of great care. They went to great pains to make a very certain kind of movie for maybe to get everything out of it that the filmmakers intended a very specific kind of viewer. I am definitely not that viewer, but I was willing to go along with Mank because it has a lot of high profile filmmakers. And we're in this strange place now where all of a sudden movies by revered directors and actors pop up under the illusion of being free on Netflix. Well, Fincher's movies have never been known for their like accessibility. I mean, it, there's only so much relevance that this movie can have in the modern time, which I think if there's a drawback to Mank is definitely the biggest one. I think that Mank is not a movie made for Yeah, Mank is a movie made for a specific, very specific <laughs> person. Very audience. lonely mountain men. <laughs> This is, it's not even for Hollywood insiders. It's like for Hollywood insiders like mom and dad who like loved the cinema in the 40s and 50s or something. The audience that would un know and understand the story and embrace the story is like so esoteric and small and, and specific that I have to believe that this movie isn't meant for them. This movie is <laughs> like JFK, meant to be confounding, meant to, it's meant to make you feel like you're getting a glimpse into a world that you wouldn't otherwise have any access to. To confuse the eye and confound the understanding. We're not going to Willie's costume parties. We are not inside the studio echelon boardrooms. We're not in writer meetings. I mean, some of us are. But this is intended to give uh, us a glimpse into this world so that we can feel like the outsiders that we are but that we have some kind of special access, this little this little ticket to ride in Mink's world for time. And I think in that sense, if that is true, then I would say that Mank is successful in giving us that peak, this glimpse into this world that we wouldn't otherwise see. Mank, I think, achieves what it set out to achieve, and therefore it's good. Mank, a film starring Gary Oldman, 
directed by David Fincher, for specifically David Fincher to watch and enjoy. <laughs> I can't give Mank a bad review because I feel like I would look stupid in doing so. This movie is beyond my ability to comprehend, so I had to revert to the base level of film watching that I resort to, which is typically the excellence in execution and marvel at Gary Oldman's transformative abilities. Um, that said, I think he was a little bit wonky. Maybe he was a little bit too drunk. He was Nicolas Cage level, comic drunk, stumbling around. And yeah, it's delightful kind of vibe. He actually played a drunk soldier on an episode of Friends probably 20, 25 years ago now. And his diatribe and his monologue reminded me more of the drunken Friends character than Gary Oldman of old. Gary Oldman. But otherwise, fun to watch. You can tell that this movie was not crafted by slouches. And as such, I tried to regard it on a high level of filmmaking. In that level, way, it was successful. It might have been just slightly inaccessible to me. So I give it an all right rating because it is not a poorly made or executed movie. It was actually fairly entertaining to watch, but it was all right and nothing spectacular. If you got something out of Mank that I didn't get, feel free to let us know because I would love to not look stupid. And therefore, it's an all right movie. There you got it. An all right from Wes. A good from Iris. I'm not exactly an enjoyable film, <laughs> but a film to kind of marvel at in terms of its execution. We'd love to know what you think. 818-835-0473 is our hotline. Uh, give us a call. Leave us a voicemail or whatever movies at gmail.com. Not exactly a holiday movie, but... Uh, definitely a movie to kick off our award season set of reviews on or whatever movies. Please like, subscribe, share, follow, all those good things. Be well, stay safe. Happy holidays. See you next time. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric acid.